Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series, the show covering all things health, wellness, culture, and more. The show for all of us who aren't old, we're better. Each week, we'll interview superstars, experts, and ordinary people doing extraordinary things, all related to this wonderful experience of getting better, not older. Now, here's your host, the award-winning Paul Vogelzang. Welcome back to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, your trusted source for enriching content tailored to the vibrant lives of aging adults over the age of 60 and their families. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and today we embark on a captivating journey through the annals of history, a journey that unravels the enigmatic connection between literature, espionage, and the battle for hearts and minds during the tumultuous Cold War era. Picture this, the world divided by ideology where the mightiest nations on Earth, the United States, the Soviet Union, Britain, China, all engaged in a shadowy war of words. In this riveting Smithsonian Associates interview series episode, we delve deep into the clandestine world of spies, secret agents, and literary warriors where every word written held the power to shape destinies and change the course of history. Smithsonian associate and author Duncan White is our esteemed guest today, a cultural historian and literary scholar who has uncovered the secrets of those who fought with their pens and keyboards, not on the battlefields, but in the pages of novels, essays, and poems. Duncan White is the author of Cold Warriors, Writers Who Waged the Literary Cold War, and is our guest today. Smithsonian Associate and author Duncan White will be presenting at Smithsonian Associates coming up, and the title of his presentation is Fighting the Cold War with Words. Please check out our website for more details about Duncan White's new book and his upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. Today with Duncan White, we will journey back in time together. Duncan White will answer our questions about spies from the Spanish Civil War era to the fall of the Berlin Wall as we explore the lives and works of literary giants such as George Orwell, Mary McCarthy, Graham Greene, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Their words were not just stories. They were weapons that could win hearts, provoke governments, and even risk their very own lives. But this episode isn't just about espionage and intrigue. It's about the personal sacrifices, the betrayals, the love stories shattered by political fissures, and the artists who found themselves caught in the crossfire. So, dear listeners, fasten your seatbelts as we step into a world where words were the sharpest weapons, and where the battle for hearts and minds unfolded not on the battlefield, but in the pages of books and magazines. Stay tuned as we dive deep into Cold Warriors, writers who waged the literary Cold War with our expert guest, Duncan White. It's a journey through history like no other, and it all starts right here, right now, on the Not Old Better Show with author, historian, Smithsonian associate, Duncan White. Duncan White, welcome to the program. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course, you are a Smithsonian associate. You're going to be presenting at Smithsonian Associates coming up. The title of your presentation is Fighting the Cold War with Words. I'm kind of a spy versus spy kind of guy. I love to read those books. 
coming across this book uh, by you. Thank you very much for sharing it with me and our audience. I, I was just literally um, struck because I just thought this, this is just fascinating. I, I did not know this, and I'm excited to get into it with you. The title of your new book, of course, is Cold Warriors, Writers Who Waged the Literary Cold War. So let's just jump right into this. I want to ask you about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. Maybe tell us briefly about it, and, and in particular, how you use Zoom to engage our audience. We're, we're all on Zoom these days, and there's just some great images I'm sure that you're going to be able to share. There's some wonderful images in the book, and so um, touch on a little bit of both of those, what we'll see and what we'll hear. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. But thanks for such a, a wonderful introduction. Um, yeah, the guy, when for the Smithsonian presentation, I'm going to be trying to give a bit of an overview of this book, and 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 I'm going to be trying to focus in really on some of the more intriguing characters and stories um, to really kind of get to some of actually that spy versus spy excitement that's <laughs> right. in um, in the literary Cold War. And as you rightly point out, the you know this is an era where there's just some wonderful photographers were on the beat, and so we've got some fantastic images mm-hmm. um, of you know these various writers in the various parts of the world um, during a lot of these kind of conflicts. So um, yes, Zoom is something that um, even before the pandemic we started to get quite familiar with. But certainly, <laughs> my teaching at my teaching at Harvard, um, you know, we've used Zoom a lot. So, I, I, you know, what I do try and do is bring these to life by using a lot of these photographs, right, by by almost using those as the set pieces um, that get me talking about some of these uh, um, Cold War tales uh, around literature, espionage, um, and conflict and so forth. Thank you for that. Maybe maybe elaborate for just a, a bit for our audience about how literature played this role, because it was a, a pivotal one during the Cold War. And it, and it really became a weapon, but it also became a danger to those who engaged in it. And we'll talk about some of those writers in just a minute, but maybe just give us this overall sense as to what this really was, how literature was used here. Yeah, that's a, a it's it's a kind of the central question of mm-hmm. the book, right? Is this is this idea that the Cold War um, was a war of ideas in many ways? Now, obviously, there were conflict zones all around the world where people, you know, were were, were fighting with weapons, but you know, there was a real at stake was this kind of real kind of larger ideological conflict between the West, between ideas of democratic capitalism and soviet communism and you know these were these were kind of fundamental ideas about like how we should organize our society how we should live our lives we just had world war ii we had the great depression we would had the economic crash we'd had all sorts of tumult we'd had the rise of fascism so really you know in in, in the late 40s which is when you know we commonly think of the cold war kind of fully emerging there's this real contestation of values and one of the ways, one of the most important and powerful ways that these ideas were communicated to people and were critiqued or supported or championed was through literature, through telling of stories, right? So, you know, for example, one that I'm, I'm hoping many of your listeners will be familiar with is Animal Farm, which was you know, George Orwell's account of the Russian Revolution and the kind of excitement around that, but then also how that soured into authoritarianism. And, you know, by telling that story as a kind of 
you know, animal fable that took place on a farm. He was trying to engage in this emerging conflict by, you know, educating his readers around what he saw was the truth of emerging Soviet communism. Um, you know, written at a time when a lot of people would not have recognized it as such, when they were far more optimistic about um, uh, the conditions of, of life in, in, in the Soviet Union. You mentioned the values, the ideas, the stories, and there were those ideas and values on kind of both sides that strained relationships in the in the artistic community due, due to political differences. And I, I wonder if you'll just share a story or two, an anecdote about some of those ideological divides that affected and impacted some of these famous writers, because it was significant and it was very real. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's, um, you know, there was so many different ways that the that, that writers were, were placed under extraordinary strain um, on both sides, as you point out. Um, you know, we might start with something like McCarthyism, right? This kind of the sort of the anti-communist witch hunt that took place in, um, you know, in the United States in, 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 in the late 40s into the, into the 50s when writers whose politics did not align with, um, you know, the American sort of Cold War liberal status quo were, were, were really um, pushed to the margins. And I talk in one of my chapters about um, a writer called Howard Fast, who, you know, is a pretty radical left-wing kind of guy, playwright, novelist. And he, um, he pretty much got blacklisted. He was being spied on by the FBI. You know, he couldn't get books published. So, you know, he ends up self-publishing this book, Spartacus, hmm. which, you know, um, becomes a bestseller and, you know, becomes a famous movie. And he, you know, he's kind of battling constantly against marginalization with the U.S. Now, the consequences in the West were often, you know, commercial, social, so forth. But in the Soviet Union, you know, it could be far more lethal. Um, so another writer who I talk about at length in the book is, is Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you know, who um, stood up to uh, the Kremlin in many different ways, um, ended up becoming one of the great documenters of the Gulag, novelized it, wrote a kind of, uh, you know, his great Gulag archipelago account of it, um, at just extraordinary risk, extraordinary personal sacrifice. Um, you know, placed into internal exile, pursued um, by the intelligence services, and eventually um, uh, um, thrown out of the country, which, you know, <laughs> compared to some of his colleagues in the 1930s, was, was maybe uh, the best possible result, you know, many of whom perished under Stalin. But for, but for Solzhenitsyn, it was just, a, 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 you know, an incredible story of courage and obduracy in the face of just just you know harassment of 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 an ex, of a kind of astonishing um, degree yeah the list was really impressive as i as i is really impressive you mentioned Solzhenitsyn and 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 George Orwell and there's John Le Carre Richard Wright Ernest Hemingway Boris Pasternak Václav Havel many 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 writers how organized was this? Was this a an effort that was individual? Were, was there a guiding hand on, on either side that was kind of directing some of these works? And and how did that kind of contribute 
to the Cold War because, you know, today we have uh, – it's one of the reasons I enjoyed the book so much too, Duncan White. I, I, there are some parallels to what we see today going on in kind of social media and disinformation. And I wondered if you kind of felt some of that hand guiding you as you were writing this. Hmm. Well, um, that's, I mean, that's such a terrific question. Thank you for it. I mean um, – the answer is, is is kind of interesting and complicated, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I that, that I try and tease out over the course of the book, because one of the sort of the arguments I make is that these these writers are not mere pawns, right? Even even the most sort of obedient Soviet writers who I look at, you know, had their moments of minor rebellion, mm-hmm. um, but essentially in the Soviet Union there really was a state organized you know project to to kind of get the ideas of soviet communism marxist leninism across in the most positive light possible and so increasingly i mean in the aftermath of the revolution there was a lot of kind of really incredible literary creativity but increasingly that became sort of more dogmatic and you had the creation of a sort of artistic credo and socialist realism under Stalin. They kind of like <laughs> sort of consolidated all the writers into one big union and told them, hey, you've got to write like this. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of factories and tractors and off you go. <laughs> <laughs> and the problem was it was terrible, right? And, you know, <laughs> real writers don't like being told yeah. what to write. And so the, so the Soviet Union had this constant battle between its effort to kind of like organize and, and determine what writers could do. And all these writers who continued to, to try and speak their truths, write their truths. Mm-hmm. The U.S. was kind of different. And it's kind of, that's, it's almost more fascinating, the story of what was happening in, in, in the U.S. and in Western Europe, in that there was a kind of hidden hand at work. And it wasn't telling people what to write, but it was subsidizing and subtly supporting secretly the right, the kind of writing that it, that it liked, the kind of writing that kind of served the larger goals of the cold war. So to be a bit more concrete, you know, the CIA basically established a whole series of front organizations that would funnel money to magazines, conferences, publishers with the goal of getting a certain kind of literature out there. Now, sometimes that was just, you know, literature they thought was good American literature. William Faulkner, Ernest Hemingway, they wanted to sort of advertise and, and you know, the, 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 the brilliance of American literature around the world. But also, increasingly, you know, during the course of the Cold War, they would, you know, try and get copies of uh, Soviet dissident work out there, like Eastern European dissident writers, anti-communist work, work that really was triumphalist about capitalism or the American project. Those sorts of things started to get um, mobilized in all sorts of different and interesting ways. And, you know, this was, this was something that was often done without the writers having a clue that the money that was helping fund their visit to this conference or that the check they got in the mail for con- you know, contributing to Encounter magazine had indirectly come from the Central Intelligence Agency. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, 
and everything Smithsonian. As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. Our guest today is award-winning journalist and academic Duncan White. Duncan White has written the new book, Cold Warriors, Writers Who Waged the Literary Cold War. Duncan White will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. Please check out our show notes for more details about Duncan White, his upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation, and this wonderful new book he's written, Cold Warriors. The book is just getting rave reviews. Uh, The Sunday Times calls it their book of the year. And they describe it as a vivid, personality-driven chronicle of books going to war and of writers finding themselves either caught up in the gears of international spycraft or acting as spies themselves. Irresistible reading. Fantastic review. I I just can't recommend the book uh, enough. The, The pictures are just really amazing. Your research is impressive. Congratulations on all of this. I wonder if you'll tell us a little bit, though, about about instances perhaps where authors faced consequences. You know, Solzhenitsyn, Orwell, you know, Mary McCarthy, Graham Greene, where they they really were under the thumb and and perhaps faced some retaliation due to some of this work that that, that they were doing. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know you bring up Orwell as a good example. Mary McCarthy, you know, similarly uh, um, had had similar challenges to Orwell. Basically, there was a there was an orthodoxy that began to emerge in the 1930s, right? In on the left, you know, that was kind of pro-Soviet. Everybody was trying to be anti-fascist. Everybody was rightfully opposed to to, to the rise of Nazism and. And, you know, the, 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 the fight against Franco in Spain and the Spanish Civil War, you know, brought people together. But um, when Orwell went out to Spain and he saw how Stalinist communism, how ruthless it was, how they were purging other um, sort of branches of, 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 the, of the leftist alliance in Spain, he, you know, he came back and realized he was going to have to break with these people and tell them the truth of what he, what he had seen. Um, and that was really hard. That resulted in him, you know, falling out with a lot of people who he'd become very close to as a writer. And in a way, you know, we think of Orwell now as this, you know, great canonical figure, but in some ways he, you know, he really had to um, battle against kind of marginalization and, uh, and the loss of friendships. Um, but, you know, he was a stubborn old goat, so he didn't really mind that so much. Um, but the same is true of someone like Mary McCarthy, you know, similarly in New York in the 1930s, you know, mixing with a lot of leftist inter- intellectuals, you know, when, when she, you know, began to fully understand, and again, Spain was one of the things, the Spanish Civil War was one of the things that helped her understand this, that maybe the Soviet Union was not the utopia that some of her friends and, and, and colleagues presented it. It was hard to break um, uh, with those circles and to and to try and speak the truth. And 
Um, you know, and, and that, that goes that, you know, that tracks all the way through the Cold War. You know, it's, it was often so much easier to just go along with, um, you know, the status quo, to go along with the regime, to not critique, um, you know, uh, your, your, the, 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 the foreign policy or the domestic policy of the Kremlin or the White House or whatever it may be. But a lot of these writers did. A lot of these writers did so great personal risk. The other book that just jumped out at me as, as being one that I, I hadn't anticipated you know, here was Dr. Zhivago by Boris Pasternak. I thought that was really interesting and, and played a significant role in all of this controversy. Would you just tell us a little bit about the role of the novel and, and, mm. and Boris Pasternak and what kind of an impact it really played here and how this experience um, really exemplified the risk that these authors faced? Yeah. Oh, no, gladly. I mean, Boris Pasternak was not really a dissident in the mold of a Zolzhenitsyn, mm-hmm. right? He was, he's a really, he was a very poetical guy. He was somebody who um, really many, you know, many sort of Russian, um, you know, literary critics would, would think of as a sort of the great poet of his generation, um, but he was mostly a poet. But then he started working on this novel. And this novel, Dr. Zhivago, was, you know, it was, it was it, truthful to what Pasternak felt his own experiences were. And that involved quite a lot of criticism of what had happened after the revolution. So he's writing this novel. And, um, you know, he's getting pretty determined to publish it. We're in the 1950s here. And... Um, the Soviet regime, the Kremlin, doesn't like it at all. It gets, <laughs> without, he doesn't really try and get it smuggled out, but he ends up sharing it with this kind of Italian guy who's a, who comes to interview him, who ends up smuggling um, the manuscript out, and it gets published in the West. And it becomes a huge bestseller. I mean, it's top of the bestseller mm-hmm. list in the US. It gets made into that, you know, that famous uh, Hollywood adaptation. But crucially, it also... Um, wins Pasternak the 1958 Nobel Prize for Literature. And not only does he win that prize, but he wins it ahead of Mikhail Sholokov, who is the darling of Soviet letters. So this is seen as a kind of international humiliation. Pasternak gets put under extraordinary pressure to reject the award. And this is the kind of sort of, this is one of these stories where you see the contestation around kind of literary prestige becoming a big part of the Cold War, right? There was the space race, there was the effort to, you know, put the first man on the moon, get the first person into orbit, you know, there was there was races across all sorts of different fields, but in literature, the Nobel Prize became this sort of this sort of venue for this kind of proxy conflict. And the 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 Dr. Zhivago, this kind of <laughs> basically epic love story ends up becoming um, uh, a real kind of uh, uh, bone of contention between the two superpowers. There's actually, a, there's, if, if you'll indulge me, a brief anecdote. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, um, just to give you a sort of sense of the way that, that, that Zhivago was promoted, there was a World Fair in Brussels in 1958 um, is if you've ever been to Brussels, there's this atomium, this kind of big structure that's a legacy of this big fair. But basically, you know, all the countries in the world came and kind of sh- showed off 
you know, what they were good at, what they were doing well. And in the Vatican Pavilion, there was uh, 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 the Vatican had kind of staged a pavilion in which August Rodin's The Thinker statue was on loan from the Louvre. And so lots and lots of people were coming into this pavilion. And hidden in the back was a secret library. Um, and so when Russian visitors came from the Soviet Union, they were ushered in and they were given texts, books that were banned in the Soviet Union. Realizing this, the CIA, in collaboration with Dutch intelligence, actually rushed out a copy, a Russian language copy of Dr. Zhivago, like a kind of pocket-sized one in small print that could be smuggled back into the Soviet Union. Hmm. This is in 1958, you know, around when the Nobel Prize stuff is going on. So that, you know, it was made, it was designed to be easily hidden in amongst your luggage. Mm. So, you know, the lens that the CIA would go to, the lens that, that the West would go to just to get this novel into the hands of Russian readers tells you how much uh, literature was valued in the Cold War. Thank you for that. That's wonderful. I appreciate that. Just a great, great anecdote. Well, let, let me fast forward a little bit to today and, and, and ask you about the legacy of the Cold War era literature. I mentioned spy versus spy genre at, at the at the top of our program, and I am kind of into that. I will admit to that. I like these thriller books, the espionage series that are authored today by many soldiers, U.S. Navy SEALs, Rangers. They're great spy writers, though. I mean, I look at even like Ian Fleming and, and Tom Clancy. How is this generation influenced by – the legacy of the Cold War era. I'm curious. Um, well, it's it's another really great question, and I teach a course at Harvard on on espionage fiction, on the history of it. Mm-hmm. And essentially, you know, one of the big arcs of it is this arc towards the sort of almost professionalization of it. Right, a lot of espionage itself was a somewhat amateur activity in the early 20th century. And and sort of World War Two really kind of accelerated the professionalization of it. You know, CIA didn't exist until um, until the forties in the U.S. Um, and so, what you had was as espionage became more professionalized, it became much more sophisticated. And in the Cold War, it became much more pervasive. Right, there was so much more money being channeled into into spying. And it became a subject of increasing fascination, I think, to, to readers, to the public. And so writers who themselves had been spies, Graham Greene, mm-hmm. John le Carre, mm-hmm. Ian Fleming, you know, I, I, they tapped into something that, that people got, were, were really interested in learning about. And part of this is to do with the, with the very secrecy of espionage itself, right? Because... You know, a lot of the people who are spies are not allowed to write about mm-hmm. their spy craft. They're not allowed to write about what they've been involved in. So fiction becomes a way of opening up what Le Carre would call the secret world, mm-hmm. right? Allowing you into it and, and, and seeing some of it. Now, you know, Le Carre would insist that a lot of the stuff he's doing is, is kind of made up. But because of his background in MI5 and MI6, he sort of has a felt reality. And, and, you know, he's clearly drawing on things that he experienced, similar to Graham Greene as well. And so that 
that I think is one of the reasons that we see, you know, it was writers like those that kind of develop this appetite for, you know, novels that that are fictionalized accounts, of, but 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 still kind of feel like they're coming out of of, of, of real, um, you know, espionage missions mm. and objectives and so forth. <laughs> As I say, it, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it, it really is just so wonderful. Your your book, Cold Warriors, is just fantastic too, Duck and White. I, I just, again, I'll just say it, it. I can't recommend it enough. The pictures are worth the book. You got to go grab the a physical copy of the book. I, I love the, you know, you're talking about these spies, perhaps double agent Kim Philby, you know, comes to mind. There's a great picture of Kim Philby. And then just below the picture, you have this image that you've inserted in the book of a commemorative stamp of Kim Philby that the mm-hmm. Russian government. And so the, the these governments were taking this stuff very seriously. You know, these double agents, they were powerful and um, and and godlike in some of these these countries. They really were eulogized. They were, and, and you know, they become the the kind of Kim Philby himself becomes a sort of you know one of the great subjects of of um, of spy fiction mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. the film story so if you think about Le Carre's you know great Tinker Tailor Soldier mm-hmm, Spy mm-hmm, is yeah. a kind of is a sort of refracted version of an, an accounting of of, of, of Le Carre's own very complicated relationship with Philby you know it's you know, Le Carre, uh, David Cornwell is, you know, is, is his real name, but Le Carre was his, his, his nom de plume. He was pretty convinced that Philby had, had blown him as an agent mm-hmm. when he'd been, you know, when he uh, defected to the Soviet Union, and, but was, was really fascinated with what motivated this wealthy, you know, uh, well-educated um uh, sort of man of the establishment to betray mm-hmm. his company. Mm-hmm. So he was really fascinated by that. And somebody who had a very different relation and, and, and repelled by it as well. You know, he yeah. never really, he refused to meet with Philby, even though Philby wanted to meet with him right towards the end of Philby's life in the 80s. Whereas Graham Greene, who actually worked directly for Philby when he was in MI6, always remained on pretty good terms with Philby and, and did go and visit him in the Soviet Union, wrote a preface to Philby's memoir, which, you know, was was um, promoted in, you know, which is actually, he was a good writer, Philby, but um, the existence of that memoir is, is, you know, I'm sure partly down to the KGB wanting to get that story out there because it was a, a catalogue of, of, of humiliations for British intelligence. Um but yeah, so so Philby is one of these figures that that is a kind of I don't know an icon of of, of Cold War espionage, mm-hmm. and so becomes part of the, the fabric of, of of not only the the sort of that you know with that stamp that kind of sort of national sense of triumphalism you know when you win some of these 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 um, espionage conflicts, but also you know part of the kind of the literary imagination as well. Duncan White, thank you so much for your time. I have just a final question for you. What, what, you know, we can always learn so much from history, and, and your book is just wonderful in that way. What, give us the one, maybe just one lesson, one takeaway that you feel like our Smithsonian Associates audience can, can learn from this about these writers who really navigated all of this literary landscape of the Cold War. 
Um, well, I think, you know, for, I mean, I mean, I'm in my forties and the cold war was something that, that kind of really marked my childhood. Um, but you know, for, for older generations, this was, you know, this is, this is a fundamental part of how, mm-hmm. how people grew up and is very important to them. But I think one of the things that I think one of the lessons from this is that, you know, we really need society to be very cognizant of, you know, the values of, of freedoms of expression, of supporting, you know, libraries, publishing houses, books, mm-hmm. organizations like Penn, thinking about, you know, that it's, you know, in an era when we're seeing a wave of authoritarianism around the world, and we're seeing some book banning at home as well, but mm-hmm. lots of book banning in in countries, you know, all over the globe. Um, we need to kind of look back at some of these writers and think about some of the things they sacrificed in order to publish their books and, and make sure that we are sort of honoring that sacrifice by ensuring that, um, that we stand up for some of these values, um, you know, for the importance of literature, even if we don't agree with it, even if we don't like it, that, 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 um, that there's something that, that you know, what, that the, the sort of the sacrifices these writers made in Cold War is not forgotten. Smithsonian Associate Dr. Duncan White has been our guest today, author of the new book, Cold Warriors, Writers Who Waged the Literary Cold War. Again, congratulations on this wonderful book. I want to recommend it to our audience as well as your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. The book is just so well-researched. I think there's a hundred pages of of notes, and I, I always value that. I think that shows just the hard work that it takes to to write a book like this, and you've just done such a great job, and such a great job as our guest today. Thank you. Again, links so that our audience can find out more information about Dr. Duncan White, about his upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates titled Fighting the Cold War with Words. Amazing work. Thanks very much, Duncan White. We appreciate your time and have a great rest of your day. And please, as you do more work in this area, we'd, we'd love to have you back. I think this is just going to be a fascinating episode for us, as well as a wonderful presentation at Smithsonian Associates. But please come back. Oh, well, anytime. It's a total pleasure to be here. And thank you for such wonderful questions. It was really uh, a great opportunity to to chat a little bit more about this book. Yeah, well, thank you very much. This is the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast where history comes alive and we celebrate the richness of experience and knowledge that comes with age. Thank you for joining us on this journey brought to you by Smithsonian Associates. Smithsonian Associate and author Duncan White will be presenting at Smithsonian Associates coming up and the title of his presentation is fighting the Cold War with words. Please check out our website for more details about Duncan White's new book and his upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. Thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. Thank you to our wonderful audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well, be safe. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. Thanks, everybody. We will see you next week. Thanks for joining us this week on the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. To find out more about all of today's stories or to view our extensive back catalog of previous shows, simply visit notold-better.com. 
Join us again next time as we deep dive into some of the most fascinating real-life stories from across the world, all focused on this wonderful experience of getting better, not just older. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on community radio.